The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, this is a pretty well-known account of Scripture. Even people that don't really know the Bible very well or haven't grown up in the church will know something of King David. They've probably heard of King David. And usually if they know anything about King David, they know, first of all, about David and Goliath. But secondly, they usually have heard something about David and Bathsheba. This is a well-known account of Scripture. And for us as Christians, and especially if you've grown up in the church or you've been a Christian for some time, this is a familiar account of Scripture. Now, we know this pretty well. It's familiar. Now, we tend to view it as a cautionary tale. You know, this is a warning to us about the dangers, the temptations of power, of seduction, of illicit love. But because it's familiar, we can sometimes miss the weight and the evil of what we're reading about here. And David himself does this. Look at what David says to Joab in verse 25. This is the message that he sends back to Joab. He says to him, verse 25, Do not let this matter displease you. And literally what he's saying is, Don't let this be seen as an evil thing in your eyes. It's okay. It's not so bad. But we have the last line of the account, the last line of verse 27, where we read, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's the exact thing that David had said to Joab. Don't let this thing displease you. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. But the last line says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what we're reading about is evil. And as we read a text like this, it should make us sick. This is wickedness. This is a very dark chapter of Scripture. This is just as dark, it's just as evil as 1 Samuel chapter 28, which reports Saul's visitation to the medium of Endor. This is an equally black chapter of Scripture. So we can't try to resist the weight of a text like this. But there is another danger. We can make light of it. We can say, oh, this is a cautionary tale. But we can also, yes, recognize the gravity and the wickedness of what David has done, but then say, but that would never happen to me. You know, this is so bad. This is, this would never, I would never do such a thing. Not me. Well, here we need to hear God's warning to Cain. Remember, this is in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was envious that his brother's sacrifice was accepted. And the Lord said to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And we need to all recognize this morning that the sin of this text is crouching at the door of your life. And its desire is for you. This isn't something that happened a long time ago. This isn't something that happens to other people. 
the sin of this text is crouching at the door, at your door, and its desire is for you. Now, as we consider this, we need to consider, first, the occasion for this sin. And that's important, the occasion for the sin. David opened the door to this sin because of a lack of discipline. He was undisciplined. He was lounging. He was idle. His eyes were wandering. He opened the door to sin. Then we need to consider the sin itself. Now the sin begins with covetous lust. It begins with coveting. That's the first sin. But that sin mutates, and sin always mutates. It's a contagion. And it mutates into adultery, into deception, manipulation, murder. I think you can actually read through this text and identify each one of the Ten Commandments being broken here. But we need to see here covetousness, adultery, deception, murder. And then we also see the effects of sin. The effects of sin. Sin depersonalizes and dehumanizes us. David's sin of coveting Bathsheba depersonalizes her. It corrupts us. David's heart is corrupted by this. Sin hardens us. His heart is not only corrupt, it's hard, it's callous. And, and this is the most important thing, it displeases the Lord. God hates it. Now, we can't just leave it there. And so, this text does point us to the greater son of David. It points us to Christ. Because there is forgiveness for even this sin. There is a covering even for this sin through the blood of Christ. And the salvation that we have in Christ not only covers sin, it not only forgives our sin, but it heals us from the effects of sin. Sin depersonalizes us, but in Christ we are known, we are named, we are loved. Sin corrupts us, it hardens our heart, but in Christ we are cleansed, we're purified, we're given a new heart. Sin displeases God. But Christ is the propitiation for our sins. In him we are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. So first, the occasion of David's sin. It's very clear from the opening verses that the occasion for this sin is a lack of discipline. Listen to verses 1 and 2. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. He didn't go out to battle. And his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So in the spring of the year, when the kings go out to battle, David's a king. Where should he be? He should be out with the troops. He's not. He remained in Jerusalem. And the word that's used there is the same word that we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 7, sitting. Now in chapter 7, he is sitting before the Lord. And he is praying. 
And as he rests in the presence of the Lord, and as he prays and meditates on the word of God, that time of sitting, that resting, that praying, confirms the word of God in his life, and he's stirred up to go out and act in the light of that word. It stirs him up to action. And we need to take time for such sitting, such resting, such remaining before the Lord. But that's not what this is. David's taking it easy. He's lounging. This is leisure. He's not sitting before the Lord. He's taking long naps. Notice, late in the afternoon. Now, some of us do enjoy a siesta. You know, it's nice to catch a few winks after lunch. We need that sometimes. Doesn't mean sleep all afternoon. Late in the afternoon. You know, five o'clock, six o'clock. David kind of wakes up. All right. He's wandering around the rooftop of his palace. He's looking. What's going on? Oh, his eyes start to wander. The occasion of his sin is a lack of discipline. He's idle. He's idle. Idleness is dangerous. Idleness opens the door to sin. Think of it this way. Standing water soon becomes stagnant. Standing water gathers filth. If you are idle, if you are standing water, you are going to become stagnant. You are attracting sin. You're opening the door to sin. And the Christian life is a walk, but it is a steady walk, and it is an uphill walk. And if you stop, if you slow down, you take your foot off the pedal, you're going to start to go backwards. And once you start going backwards, you will be amazed how quickly that you, you pick up speed. And then you're going to crash. So don't let up. Keep going. Idleness is dangerous. Be occupied. David remained before the Lord. He sat before him. He prayed. And then he was busy in the work of the Lord. He was occupied. So each one of us needs to be careful about lounging around, being unoccupied, being idle. You know, I think of young men in particular. Get busy. Be occupied. Go to bed early. Get up early. Get out there. So David's lack of discipline opened the door. And it caused his eyes to wander, and as he's looking around, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. That wasn't going to happen on the battlefield if he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. Well, his indiscipline opens up the door to sin. And the first sin to enter in is coveting. Look at the last part of verse 2 again. He, was fr- uh, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is, this not, is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? The Hittite? So notice what David has done here. First of all, he's, he's looking. He sees her. That should have been the end of it. But then he inquires. He inquires. He looks and then he inquires. He's indulging his curiosity. Oh, who is this? Who is this woman? 
And we need to be aware in our idleness and our indiscipline and our eyes start to wander and maybe you're online and a little something pops up. And then what do you do? You inquire. You inquire. Oh, let me just search. Let me click. Let me inquire. Or maybe there's another man or another woman, maybe... You know, they're on your ultimate Frisbee team or they're at your work or even in the church and you find you kind of hit it off with them. Oh, he's, he really understands. You know, he's list, he listens to me. Or she, she really, you know, she gives me attention. And then we inquire. We're curious. Oh, I want to get to know this other person a little bit more. Let me just find out a bit more. Just, just inquire. That's what he does. Now, he inquires because he's coveting. He wants her. He covets her. Now, he gets a report back. Somebody says to him, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? Now, this report back is a huge billboard in neon lights saying to David, hands off. This is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Eliam and Uriah are part of David's close circle. He knows them well. And we find out later in Scripture that Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is one of David's closest counselors. So the report that comes back to him is, David, the woman you were watching bathing there, That is the wife of your close friend. That is the daughter of your close friend. That is the granddaughter of your close friend. It's Bathsheba. Now the fact that her grandfather is part of David's court tells us that she was quite young too. David's old. Now Eliam and Uriah are out at war. She's vulnerable. And David takes her vulnerability as an opportunity. His indiscipline opened the door to coveting, and he let coveting in. He sees an opportunity. Coveting leads to adultery. Now here we have to be careful, and you know this when you're online. As soon as you let in that covetous lust, as soon as that web browser is over, it is very hard to kick out that covetous lust, kick it out of your house once you've let it in. You know that. Once you inquire about this guy who seems to, you know, he listens well and he understands me, or you start to inquire about this woman who, you know, seems to appreciate me and gives me attention, and you get to know each other, and there's a connection there. That's going somewhere. It is very hard at that point to stop it from going somewhere. So coveting leads to adultery. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now, I should say that the text doesn't tell us 
whether Bathsheba was a willing participant in this. It's silent on that. But I don't think it's actually silent on it. I think the way in which this is reported tells us that she is a victim. David is the one acting here. She's passive. And when we read there that David sent messengers and took her, that is a very clear echo of 1 Samuel 19, when Saul, and this is what it says in 1 Samuel 19, 20, Saul sent messengers to take David. It's the same phrase. And Saul sent his thugs to go and arrest David. So David sent messengers to take her. That's what he was doing. Sending men to her house to take her. Now we're also told that she, when she was bathing, she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. This tells us two things. It does tell us that she wasn't pregnant before she met David. But it also tells us she's faithful. She's keeping the word of God. She's keeping the law. Now we need to, to pay attention to the way that this is described. There's nothing romantic about this. There's no passion here. This is not love. The way it's described is totally impersonal. It's totally transactional. He sent. He took. She came. He lay with her. She returned. There's no romance here. There's no love. This isn't even eros. Now, romance, passion, eros, these are good gifts of God, which he gives to a husband and wife to be celebrated and cultivated in marriage. That's not what this is. And let's be clear, adultery poisons passion. It kills romance. It is a cancer to eros. It is not love. Pornography has the same effect. Pornography kills love, it kills romance, it kills eros. It may do it more slowly, but it is, it is a death of love by a, by a thousand clicks. Now Proverbs warns us about covetous lust. It warns us about adultery. It warns us about pornography. It tells us that if you open the door to that and walk through it, you are going into the house of Sheol. This is Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7. You are going into the chamber of death. You may think, oh, this is just a bit of entertainment. This is a bit of fun. As soon as you walk through that door, you are in hell. Now let's remember that God is love. And he made us to love. And he made us to be loved. And covetousness, lust, adultery, pornography, it kills love. And therefore, it kills us. It's murder. Now, if you're reading Proverbs 5, you're also going to read this. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Man, this is on you. Cultivate romance and eros in your marriage. Get to it tonight. Be intoxicated with her love. Take delight in her. Now, adultery leads to deception and murder. It requires deception. It always implies murder. It sometimes leads to murder. It requires deception. If you're, at, if you're having an affair, you're lying. It's there. It's got to be there. It's part of the deal. It's deception. Adultery is always deception. It requires lying. This again tells us it's not truth, or sorry, it's not love, because love rejoices in the truth. Adultery requires lying. It's not love. It's no romance, no passion, no eros there. Now much of this chapter is devoted to David deceiving, manipulating, trying to cover things up. You know, he's lying to Uriah, he's lying to others. He's, it's, it's an elaborate scheme. So there's always deception. Adultery is always an attack on honesty, integrity, on the truth. But it also leads to murder. If David can't deceive Uriah, then he has to remove Uriah. And so he arranges for his death, his murder. But let's be clear about this. As far as David is concerned, Uriah was already dead. Because when we make vows to our spouse, it is till death do us part. Till death do us part. And if you're pursuing a man or a woman that is somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife, what you're saying is, I wish your spouse was dead. And by the way, if you're married and you're pursuing another woman or another man, what you're saying is, I wish my spouse were dead. I am behaving as though she's dead. So adultery always implies murder. You may not take the person's actual life, but it implies murder. So David, because of his indiscipline, opens the door to covetous lust. He lets it in. That very quickly leads to adultery. And with it, deception and murder. Again, and you're in discipline, you're opening the door. And if you let in that covetous lust, know that adultery and murder and deception are hot on its heels. Now let's consider the effects of David's sin. So first, covetous lust depersonalizes. David depersonalizes Bathsheba. Now, when she's introduced in verse 3, her identity is affirmed. Her relationships are affirmed. She is Bathsheba. She has a name. She is the wife of Uriah. She is the daughter of Eliam. That's who she is. Not to David. She's not Bathsheba to David. She's not the wife of Uriah to David. She's not the daughter of Eliam to David. She is the object of his desire. And notice at the end of it, after he treats her like an object, 
He takes her. He lays with her. He sends her away. At the end of that, she becomes simply, in verse 5, the woman. He has robbed her of her identity. He has depersonalized her. He has dehumanized her. And that's what covetous lust does. Again, that's why it is murder, because you are denying a person their identity, their name, their relationships, that they are the image of God. And you've turned them simply into an object of your lust, an object of your desire, to be used for your gratification, for your pleasure. That's what's happening in pornography. That's what's happening when you think you're having this amazing connection with some other woman or other man. So it depersonalizes. It also corrupts. David's heart is corrupted and thoroughly corrupted in this whole thing. First of all, he has no integrity. This conversation that he has with Uriah, it starts off, how, are, how, was, how is Joab doing? How are the troops doing? How's it going? Now, it's obvious he's feigning interest. He, he, doesn't, he could care less. But not only that, and we miss this in English, because in Hebrew he says, is it shalom with Joab? Is it shalom with the people? David has no interest in the peace of God and shalom. He's actively working against shalom. He's got no integrity. Everything he says is a lie. It also corrupts his wisdom. You know, as we're reading through this, David trying to manipulate Uriah and the whole thing that, that happens, and then, you know, his strategy to have Uriah taken out. You know, we can read through that and say, oh, look, you know, this is this terrible deception in this plot. But what we also need to recognize is this is a stupid plan. First of all, David's sending messengers to get Bathsheba, and then she's sending messengers to him, and there's all kinds of people that know about this. It's public. David's got no sense that all kinds of people are hearing about this. I'm pretty sure Uriah knew what was up. There would, would have been enough people talking about it. So that wasn't wise. But then he sends the notice in Uriah's own hand. That's not smart. Uriah is suspicious. And then his plan is, hey, Joab, just send some troops forward and then tell everybody else to pull back and Uriah will be killed. Well, now all of those troops are in on it. It's a bad plan. Joab knows it's a bad plan. So he improvises. Now it requires the death of many more troops, but so be it. David's plan wasn't very good. Joab's always keen to improve on things like that. Now Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. Adultery, pornography, it's a stupid thing to do. But it's not only that, it makes you stupid. It robs you of your sense. It robs you of wisdom. You will do dumb things. So it corrupts us that way. It corrupts our wisdom. And then there is the social corruption. And we're going to have lots of time over the next few weeks to consider this. This is part of the lie of pornography or the lie of adultery. Well, it's just two consenting adults. What's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anybody. Everybody knows that is a lie. Well, pornography is just a bit of entertainment. Nobody's hurt. 
The whole second half of 2 Samuel is going to tell us that, yes, this hurts people, lots of people. This destroys David's household. We'll hear about Amnon. We'll hear about Absalom. This destroys his kingdom. What do you think Ahithophel felt? What do you think he thought about his granddaughter being taken by David like that? We're going to hear about Ahithophel later on. He's not with David. His whole kingdom is divided and corrupted. And never mind that people's sons, people's fathers, people's brothers were killed on the battlefield that day because David was trying to cover this up. So that's part of the lie about lust, about adultery, about pornography. Oh, it's, you know, nobody gets hurt. No, lots of people get hurt. Lots of people get hurt. It corrupts society. It corrupts families. It also hardens us. You know, David is very callous in this account. When he hears that lots of other soldiers died with Uriah, notice how he responds in verse 25. Well, I'll just say this to Joab. Don't let this matter displease you. It's okay. Don't see it as evil. For the sword devours now one and now another. Well, that's war. Totally callous to the death of his troops, his men. His heart is hardened towards others. But not only that, his heart is hardened towards God because when Uriah rebukes him, he refers to the ark of God. David, the ark of God is in a tent with the men on the field. How can I go to my house? David, the ark of God. Remember the ark of God. Your God. Remember your time sitting before the ark of God. Remember his promise. Remember his love, his faithfulness, his calling on you. It's hard is hard to God. He ignores God's presence. He's impervious to God's love, God's word, his command. And that will happen to you. As you open the door to covetous lust, as you open the door to pornography, to adultery, your heart will become hard. And it will not only be hard to other people, it's going to be hard to God. You are going to lose the love of God. Now, it also displeased God. And David convinces himself, not a big deal, it's okay, I got this under control, tell Joab, don't let this matter displease you, don't let it be an evil thing in your eyes. And we may be wondering this whole time, where is God in all of this? Other than the mention of the ark, he is he's conspicuously absent. Where is God in this text? And David's behaving as though God's not there. God doesn't see him. But then we have the last line. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. It was evil in his sight. And what you do in opening the door to lust, to pornography, to adultery, is evil in the sight of the Lord. He sees it. He hates it. And he's angry about it. It stirs up the wrath of God. 
And the fact that you would treat the image of God, His image, as a mere object of your gratification, stirs up the wrath of God. He is jealous for His image. So don't think you can just, ah, nobody's around, it's late at night, got my phone out, let me inquire. God is jealous for the image of God. He is jealous for the image of God in the people that you're looking at in those videos. He sees it and he is angry. So the matter displeased the Lord. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's the last line. That's the last line. We can leave it right there. That's the end of the text. We've come to the end of the sermon. But this text is crying out for redemption. It is crying out for salvation for a Savior. Now this week I was reading Second Samuel, or sorry, Second Timothy. I was reading Second Samuel too. Second Timothy, verse two eight, uh, two verse eight. And Paul, it's a simple reminder. He says, "Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David." Now I've read that countless times. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David. And every time I read the offspring of David, I say, yeah, he's the Messiah, he's the king. The offspring of David. But this week when I read that, I read it in a whole new light. Because he's the offspring of David and Bathsheba. Which means he identifies with us. Sinners. He's the offspring of David and Bathsheba. Now, we have David's prayer of repentance in response to the rebuke of Nathan. You know, David's sending around his messengers, and there's reports going here and there. And then we read, this thing displeased the Lord. And then the next line, and God sent Nathan, his messenger. God has his messengers too. Nathan confronts David. David repents and we have his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. But we also have a a powerful prayer of repentance in Psalm 32 and that's in your worship booklet on, uh, on the call to worship. And notice how that begins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now we can't hear that blessing without remembering Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David, because it's in him that our transgression is forgiven. It's in him that our sin is covered. And the death of Christ and his shed blood on the the cross is a covering for all sin. It is a covering for the sin of this text. It is a covering for David's sin. David knows the blessing of that forgiveness and that covering because he knows the grace and the mercy of God which is manifest in Christ. And we need to hear that this morning. 
Because this may be in your past. It may be in your present. And the shed blood of Christ covers that sin. And in him you have forgiveness for that sin. But it also says raised from the dead. And I was reflecting on that. Raised from the dead. And that means that in his resurrection life, we have healing and restoration from all of the effects of sin. He has risen with healing in his wings. That's what Malachi says. And so as we think of these effects of sin, sin depersonalizes, it dehumanizes. But in Christ, we are known. We are loved. We are named. Who is Bathsheba in the eyes of Christ? She's not the woman. She is Bathsheba. He knows her. He loves her. David, in the eyes of Christ, is, as his name says, he's the beloved. He's known. Uriah, in the eyes of Christ, is known and loved and named. Sin corrupts us. But in Christ, we're cleansed, we're restored. You know, David says, cleanse me with hyssop. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. And in that cleansing, there is, there is healing and restoration, not just for our own hearts, our own souls, our own integrity, but in our relationships. Now here is an amazing thought, and this is true. Uriah and David are reconciled in Christ. Just think about that. They are reconciled in Christ. Sin hardens our hearts, but in Christ we know the love of God. And God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and the Spirit renews us and gives us a new heart. David's heart was hard, it was callous, but God broke it. And he prayed, create in me a new heart. And God has given us his spirit. He's answered that prayer. We have a new heart. Sin displeases the Lord. Sin stirs up his anger. But Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, he has satisfied the wrath of God. And so in Christ we are his dearly loved children. Our Father is pleased in us because we're in his Son. So we need to hear the warning of this text. This isn't something about David and other people, and this happens to other people. No, sin is crouching at the door. This sin of this text is crouching at your door. And its desire is for you. Don't open the door. Don't let it in. Now, many of us have. That's why we're called to repentance. Close the door. Kick it out. And know this. Yes, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But remember what the Lord Jesus said. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And repentance is simply opening the door to Jesus. And quite frankly, you can't kick out that sin. You're not strong enough. 
You need to acknowledge it, name it, renounce it. You need to open the door to Jesus. That's repentance. And do it today. Do it right now. Because if you don't open the door to Jesus today, tomorrow you'll find that you are trying to barricade the door. You are pushing up filing cabinets and couches to keep them out. And you probably know of people that have committed adultery. Where are they now? Repent today. Open the door to him today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Notice what he's coming in to do. Eat with us. The door is open today. And he stands here at this table. He says, come and eat with me. And again, we're reminded, this is his body given for us. His blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's come now to the Lord's table. Let's come in repentance. We need to acknowledge our sin. We need to name it. We need to renounce it. We need to open the door to our Lord. He is standing at the door. He is knocking. Let's open the door. Let's come to the table now and eat with him. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.